All right, listeners, it's Ryan and Megan, and welcome to the Mental Health Mixtape, a podcast dedicated to fostering open conversations, sharing stories, and exploring a diverse range of topics related to mental health. So hold on to your seats as we sit down with some amazing guests to get their perspectives on the ever-changing landscape of mental health. And for all you old folks, no need to hit the record and pause button. Just sit back and let us navigate life's playlist together. During this podcast, you may hear stories about traumatic events and our guests' experiences. There may be discussions about suicide, traumatic events, and the outcomes from these events on personal lives. If you're struggling with anything you hear, please reach out to your peer support team, psychologist, call 911, or head to the nearest hospital. In Canada, you could call Boots on the Ground Peer Support for First Responders at 1-833-677-2668. Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. And in the United States, call 988 for the National Crisis and Suicide Lifeline. It should be noted that the information shared on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical, psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So, well, so what's funny What's funny about this, well, yeah, welcome, Eddie. Okay, before we jump into carrying on with our conversation, we should probably tell people who we're talking to. <laughs> Um, Andy, it is such, like, honestly, it is such a treat to have you here. I have heard your name over and over and over again, I feel, for, like, the last decade, so it's remarkable to me we've never actually been face-to-face uh, to this point, but I just want to extend my gratitude to you, not just for being here with us today to talk about all things mental health, but um, just... You know, like I see you pop up on LinkedIn and you're doing the battlefield bike ride and you're always advocating within your service. And I mean, you're just really a champion for um, the mental health needs and the wellness of the people that you're serving and for the people in your organization and beyond. And um, yeah, I just I really admire you and I really admire your commitment to all this. So thank you for all you've been doing. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm going to be blushing, but um you know, it's an absolute honor to be here. Um, and you know, uh, when I when I look at it, it's um, being a veteran in a first response. Um, unless you self advocate or advocate for each other, nobody's going to come and do it for you. So um, it's just something I believe in. And you know, if I want to help myself, I have to help others in the process. So um, it's an easy it's an easy decision for me to to, to do those things. Yeah, and I can just echo what Megan said. You know, I had the pleasure of actually meeting you within a short period of time of hearing your name. And, you know, there's there's there was a really kind of quick, robust connection, or at least that's the way it appeared. You know, your background, your history. Um, you know, I've got a military family. My grandfather served in Ortona, and that kind of linked into the previous battle ride that you did with Wounded Warriors Canada last year, or this year, actually. And, you know, that's... Um, you know, we're starting to see more cross-pollination of our military veterans moving into public service in the front lines. Um, and that's a that's an honorable piece to do. But, you know, I guess the question we always start with for most of our guests is, how did you get to where you are today? Or how did you get through all of what you've experienced? Of course, you know, I, I did a little bit of a dive in your LinkedIn profile. And other than what we know, I mean, you're with um, the HUSARS. Um, you did some deployments in the past with the Canadian Armed Forces um, and then moved into policing. And, you know, we always ask that, how did you get to where you are as a mental health advocate? Um, was it always, you know, was it always like that where you're able to sit and speak out and, you know, really ask for what you need? Uh, well, how long have we got? Like, <laughs> well, we got a long time, Andy. <laughs> so, you know, someone said I should have written a book or I should write a book, but then I said, Well, hey, what would I call it? And 
who's going to read it. But, um, you know, like I, I, I wasn't born in Canada. I was, I was born in Hong Kong, actually. My father was in the British military posted there. Um, yeah, so British military hospital in Kowloon, actually, 1969. And then my dad got really sick about a year and a half later and he was sent back to the UK. Um, and we served all over the place. Um, you know, I think I was very, very young. Uh, we were in Northern Ireland in the early 70s. And, you know, my I, I didn't know it at the time, but my, my dad uh, suffered his own post-traumatic stress during that time, uh, losing comrades and, and experiencing some of the, the, the terrorist actions and the killing that went on there. And I remember going to school on a green bus with an armed soldier and was sent home at least twice a week because of the bomb threat. So um, a little village called Bally Kelly, which is north northwest of in Northern Ireland, and while he was, you know, uh, patrolling the streets of Belfast, um, you know, my father left the military. And we went to Germany. I, didn't, I went to a German school when I was when I was very young. So I mean, I can speak some German. I just forgotten a lot of it. And um, then, you know, my parents split up, and I went went back to England. And you know, uh, I have a brother and a sister, and my extended family. Like they all live in the UK still. Like. I only have my kids here that, that my dad passed away a few years ago from cancer. So, um, so, you know, I, I didn't understand my father until I, I had to deal with my own mental health because um, there was a fair bit of resentment there. And, you know, my dad came to Canada in 1977 and, you know, I, I was still in the UK. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, not to, to dive too, to, to dive too deep into the bushes, but you know, my, my family life wasn't great. So, you know, there, there was you know, some, some home trauma there that, that caused me to want to leave. So strangely enough, my mother said, okay, fine, go. And, and, and that, that was that I came to Canada in 83, in February of, I, I seem to do everything in the winter in Canada. So, cause I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later. And, uh, you know, I went to high school in Brent and which, you know, <laughs> then I got picked on, uh, cause you know, the girls like the English accent. Uh, the boys not so much. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just been it twice in the first week. My dad's like, knock it off or, or you're going back home. So I learned how to talk with a Canadian accent because, you know, um, everyone says, we don't have an English accent as well. Oh, I can if I want to. And I was back in the UK in July and it comes back pretty quick. So, um, and, you know, like, right, um, you know, in high school, I joined the reserves because, you know, like, you know, as much as, much as my dad was, what he was like he was still you know someone that i admired and, and what he did and i thought you know the military was was a very noble profession um you know if i might if i go back in time like being a brit like we've been fighting for like thousands of years so you know i can date you know my ancestral um you know background and fighting for 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 millennia you know um you know my both of my grandfathers were, were in the world war you know, my grandfather was in the Royal Artillery, he fought Rommel at El Amin in Egypt. Um, and my other grandfather was in the Royal Ordnance Corps. So, you know, that's one thing I've learned, which is recently what I've learned is like trauma can actually be passed down genetically through generations. So, you know, it is what it is. And it's something, that, you know, that you have to deal with it. I mean, you don't know what you know until someone tells you. And, uh, I went to high school in Brampton, and then I, I graduated. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so of course I joined the Canadian Army, and the, um, of course I, I go to uh, Cornwallis, Nova Scotia, right on the Bay of Fundy in February. Oh God! <laughs> and um, like I said, there's a bit of a pattern here with the February bit, like in, in, in 
winter. So, and then, uh, you know, went to Gagetown in New Brunswick to battle school. And then, and then they sent me to Germany, which was great. Um, it was in the Black Forest, a place called Laritz, just on the, the French-German-Swiss uh, border. And I spent four years there, um, which was kind of, the first part was kind of cool because I got to see the wall come down. Uh, I got my note, my, I got a big piece of the, the Berlin Wall, so. Oh, really? Wow. It is now, but um, yeah, it's just a piece of concrete spray paint on it. Um, and yeah, there's nothing like at two o'clock in the morning being snowballed and doing a run up to the East German border. So, um, but <clears throat> it was my first experience with a ramp ceremony um, in Germany. Um, you know, I had a couple of, uh, people from the regiment take their own lives, um, which was which was rather tragic. And you know, <laughs> at 20 years old, and I wasn't. What am I supposed to do with that? Uh, um, so, what everyone else is doing is just go to the junior ranks and drink. And you know, like um, alcohol isn't 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 the the solution. But you know, as soldiers, that's all we knew how to do: fight and drink. So. Um, 90, 1993, they closed the basins and disbanded the regiment with, you know, the Hazars, and um, I got posted to Calgary. And I wasn't there very long. Um, so that was August of 93. Yeah. And then we were told about War Cup training to go to Bosnia in 90, May 94. So they sent us to California because it's too damn cold in Alberta. <laughs> 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 You know, going to Wainwright or Suffield for, uh, for for a couple of months to learn how to do you know, whatever it was we were supposed to be doing there is is, is just a futile because all you care about is more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been out in uh, Suffield in the middle of it's minus 70. It is like no fun at all. Um, everyone the cold these days, but just blame it on my old age so and uh and then that was it may 94 we landed in split croatia and um we had no equipment um basically we were told just find someone that's about your size get their helmet and black jacket and their rifle magazines and then get on the truck and uh it was a 21 hour truck ride through mountain passes and goat pass um all the way up to visico which which is a small village north 40 kilometers northwest of uh, Sarajevo. And uh, <clears throat> so. Can I ask anyway. you a question? Did you, um, did you ever talk about, like, before or as you were being deployed, did you talk with your dad about it? Like, did he give you any tips or inputs or anything like that? Uh, he did. He, you know, he, uh, you know, I forgot to mention, he, he was, um, you know, my dad would always tell, always tell stories about his time in the army. And he was in uh, Cyprus in, in, the, in the late 60s. Um, you know, when the Turks and the Greeks would seriously weren't getting along and some of the stories that he would tell me were actually, you know, they weren't, <laughs> they were dangerous, but the way he would spin it, you, you could help a lot. I mean, being British, we have this very dry sense of humor and everything has some type of, you know, humor to it and you help, can help but laugh. But so, yeah, he, you know, he, he, uh, he, gave, he actually gave me better advice than what I learned when I was in the army because we had no idea what we're, what we were going to, um, or what to expect. Um, you know, like. You know, Calgary was, um, you know, and I, like, so going from uh, the UK, um, you know, to Toronto, which is, you know, I remember the, it being fairly warm, you know, it didn't get super cold. And then back to Germany, and then they sent me to Calgary, and I went, what's this? Like, why is it, why, why are all these plugins at the mall for? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 
It's my face hurt when I go outside. <laughs> so that and the elevation, I was like, God, I can't breathe here. Um, <laughs> so it's like, oh, get back to Europe. Great. Weather's better. Um, so, you know, my dad would joke about it. He says, you know, just keep your head up, you know, head on a swivel and just, you know, just, just take care, take care of business. And, you know, I would, uh, you know, they, they at least afforded us phone calls every so often with a satellite phone so I could, we could talk to family and things. So, you know, I would talk to my dad routinely and he, he talk through some things because, you know, like if I hadn't had that, like I really, really would have struggled there because, you know, there were some things that, you know, um, you don't expect to see. Uh, do they tell you that that's what you're going to see? Because they didn't even know, um, you know, and they pop you in the middle of a war zone where there's like, there is no, I mean, there's supposed to be a ceasefire, but there really wasn't. And, you know, the, the thing about peacekeeping missions and, you know, someone said it best, you know, um, peacekeeping isn't a job for a soldier, but it's, it, it's only a job a soldier can do. And um, it, it was a struggle at times because um, it, when you're, I think I was 23 at the time, uh, 24, um, I, I, I didn't know who to talk to. I had nobody to talk to except for um, some of the guys that I, I came to Calgary from Germany with. Um, the guys that like, I, I, I was in Germany with, like we went through basic training together, like I'd been with them the entire time. So I, I could at least rely on them. So, you know, people talk about internal support networks, like we, we inadvertently create our own. Um, and, you know, funny enough, I still have it back <laughs> tomorrow. I'm going to meet with a bunch of them in Oshawa. So, um, you know, we, we, you know, we have a few drinks, have a few laughs, maybe cry a little about, you know, the, the good old times and people that were lost along the way. But it's what, what keeps us grounded, I think. I also think it's so, so interesting that you just instinctually did that, you know, like it's mm -hmm. not like someone said to you, you need an internal support network. It's like you just found your people, right? Yeah, and and that's why a lot of veterans struggle. Though when they leave the military, they lose it. They lose, they no longer have that, and they're kind of in a, uh, a sea of you know whatever it is without any type of support. And I mean, there is support there, but it's not the same. And you know, because at the end of the day, you know, it, it's all about trust. It, it, it always, always, always comes down to trust and who you trust to tell your story and trust with your feelings, because. Nobody ever wants to, you know, lay it all out there and, and, and then be told, yeah, you know what, suck it up, princess, like move on, um, yeah. get out of life because, you know, man up, um, it, it's, well, that doesn't really help. Yeah, and Sebastian yeah. Younger's book, uh, Tribe, have you ever read that? Yeah, I've read it a couple of times. Yeah, um, it speaks quite heavily towards that, that inherent sense of, you know, your unit, your tribe within the deployment and then what's missing when you're done. Right. When you come back or you, you know, exit out of the military or, you know, even police force, we can translate that across public safety because you lose your that family, that trustworthiness of the people that, you know, experience the same things you you did at the same time. Right. Yeah. And it's funny how you would, you know, in that book, when he talks about how or, or like I listened to a podcast from him and he said, you know, not, not veterans that are broken, it's society that's broken. Is when he talks mm -hmm. about the Navajo and how he talks about war warriors will come back. He says society no longer does that. So you know, yeah. he said, he said if we can't we can't fix the society, then at least fix it so we can help our veterans. And I know people are trying. It's just um, society doesn't know really what to do because they're not used to it. And I find that you know the, the towns that are around bases tend to be a little bit better at helping their veterans, but 
veterans tend to go home but where they come from and and some of those places are quite obscure but you know it, you know after that tour um i was so disenfranchised with the military and um you know i, I was drinking heavily and fighting like <laughs> like you know well then all the bars were on 11th half and i lived at 14th right. so i could just walk to the bars and then walk home but <laughs> yeah we know it that was our that was our stomping grounds too because were you disenfranchised because of your um how you were received on returning or because of what had happened during deployment or both uh both i think i i, I, I just wanted something different i and you know I, i'd moved so much my entire life that i i, I was i need i felt like i needed to grow some roots somewhere i was just tired of being on the move all the time like a, like i'm a nomad and and um like, you know, my, my family was here in Ontario. Like, yeah, I had some, you know, military friends in Calgary, but, you know, my family was still in the UK. So not really a lot of family support. So, and like, I, I wanted, wanted to come back to Ontario and, and the, the army wouldn't move me. So, you know, I was, and then, and then they closed the base in Calgary, which was, I'm like, oh, this is, like, this is just getting worse. I'm like, they close every place I go to. Like, I started to think it was me. But they didn't close Edmonton, though. So I was really, I'm like, nope, definitely not me. So, <laughs> <laughs> loved Calgary, you know. I, I applied to uh, Calgary Police in '95, but you know they weren't they weren't really hiring. So, huh? um, I, I came back to Ontario, applied to Peel Regional Police, and the recruiter says, "Didn't you just come back off tour, like you know, three months ago?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, no, you need to wait, come back and reapply in a year or so." I'm like, "Okay." Fair enough. So, I mean, I, I did do that. I, I reapplied in '98, but um, and so I told my warrant. I say I've, I've had enough. Like I, I want out. Like I just can't do this anymore. And uh, he says, "Well, you know, we have a mounted troop. Like we have horses." So goes, you know, like I know you need to change, but you won't do that. So I'm like, okay. I never thought I'd ride horses in the army, but um off i went so <laughs> stuck me on a green horse i managed to stay on so you know um you know i i i will say i think inadvertently it probably saved my life um you know uh i suppose it's the first iteration of equine therapy if you if you, if you want to call it that because you know uh asking a 1500 pound animal to, to do something you gotta figure out how to ask it because it, it won't you just tell it it won't and um you know we went all over western canada doing musical rides and um you know we used to do the calgary the calgary stampede and klondike days and we'd end up in fort st john and battle for the like we were all over the place and and um and it was good it was refreshing it was it was being in the army but not being in the army and you know i had i had an animal to look after and that relied on me and you know he was quite the character and uh you know the military give you these box lunches and I sat beside the trailer one day and I look back my sandwich is gone and I look up and it's in his mouth you know I'm like <laughs> I'm throwing my sandwich back from him and um but yeah he really did um huh. do me a lot of good so um you know I, I stopped drinking I, I changed my changed you know I changed my life around and you know and, and during that time in, in Calgary I had a um colleague um he was a rag tech. I, I knew him from Germany. He slid his wrist in the bathtub upstairs. His girlfriend Marnie came down and she's like, you know, so my my roommate, um, who, who was actually a firefighter here in Toronto, um, we see each other like he was over the house uh, a few months ago. Um, 
you know, bandaged him up, got him out of the bathtub and, and saved his life. But, you know, it was, it really was, you know, a rough patch, rough patch in my life and still not having anybody to talk to. And, and you know, whoever you did talk to, they're like, you were where? You were doing what? Like, well, okay, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, nobody cared. Like, Bosnia. Like, um, and, you know, there's a little known fact is, you know, um, there were 25 Canadians killed on that tour. And, um, you know, there was no highway of heroes. Those aircraft landed at Trent at 2 o'clock in the morning and, and nobody knew about it because I don't think the government of the day wanted to know that peacekeepers were being killed in overseas. And, um, I mean, there was more, more to it to that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a great book written by uh, Lewis McKenzie called Peacekeeper. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I met Lewis McKenzie when he was a major. When I was in uh, recruit school in, in Cornwallis, actually. And I, I have a lot of respect for the man and admiration because, you know, he told everybody what it said, what he did, but said it, how it was. Um, so, you know, it, it really was a sad state of affairs there. So, yeah. So and, just a quick question, Andy, like when you look at it now, you know, and before you got into the, um, the equine part of the military, like, do you think that like, was the drinking or was drinking a way to deal with the loneliness? Uh, that and probably the anger. I was just angry. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just, maybe I was angry about a lot of things, you know, like maybe I was angry about my childhood, you know, like, you know, they, they, you know, they talk about now about pre, being predisposed to PTSD if you have a traumatic childhood. So maybe that's where I was. Maybe I was just angry at a lot of things and, you know, picking fights and drinking and, um, you know, just, just angry at the world, I think. And, you know, like I said, if, if it hadn't been that intersect, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not sure where I would have been. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'd, you know, I've never looked at, you know, taking my own life or anything like that. It just, have just, um, I've always found something worth living for. So, um, it, but it was, a, it was a shift for me. Um, and, you know, everything happens for a reason and, and certain people come into your life for a certain reason. And maybe it's just, they give you a nudge, point you in that direction. And that's the direction, you know, I needed to go. Cause you know, I truly believe that you, and you are where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's, that. The, the fork that I took and you know strangely enough everything I've done in my military career and onwards it's always come back to better for me in the end anyway um because you don't really know what it's for or what it's meant to be but there's a reason why it happens mm-hmm. sometimes you never know and sometimes it comes back and you go oh, okay I know I get it but, yeah. um but you know the horses were a good time and you know I still have I still have a pair of horseshoes from that horse like I'll always keep and you know they retired from quite a few years ago his name was Shadow and uh oh yeah he uh we were doing a musical ride in uh, Medicine Hat and at the end of the musical ride they, they do a charge and I leaned forward and he threw his head pack and he caught me right in the face crushing the helmet into my nose and like he opened me up for about six stitches oh. <laughs> So we had to do another musical ride. So we had to give him some tranquilizer. My face is all cut and like all puffy like this, and he's flopping around. He could barely walk. Like it was uh, so much. It's like it's like a comedy, and I couldn't eat afterwards because I kept sweating my mouth open. But um, <laughs> you know, it was it was quite the ad- adventure. Is Shadow still alive? Uh, I think so. Yeah, like he's fought like I think he was born in '92. Uh, so you know, some they they put out they put them out to pass sure they've worked on their entire lives um you know the, the, the amount of units still exists like they're, they're they're quite busy 
Um, so, you know, they closed the base in, in uh, 96, uh, which was a real travesty in my opinion, but um, I, I went back and had a look at it when I was there in June and, and uh, July and I was like, yeah, yeah, it's not the same. Oh, it's not. And, uh, and then uh, they went, we went to Edmonton and I, I think I, I, I went uh, back to the tanks. Um, I did one exercise in Wainwright. That <laughs> was like, mm, you know, and, and then, uh, in, by August, I, I think I'd had enough. I said, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I, I threw my, uh, my application into Peel Region. They, I went home for an interview and they said, okay, yeah, you got a job. So in August, I was like, okay, see you later. Pack my stuff and did the 36 hour drive home. And yeah, that was the, that was the end of my, my, my military career. How did that, how did that feel? Like that's pretty momentous. And especially since you made the decision, you know, yeah. for how many years you'd been in, it sounded like it came to a close pretty quickly. Yeah, I was, um, you know, like at the time I'd, I'd had enough, like I just, and you know, one of the things was, you know, like only only uh, commissioned officers could walk through the front building and everyone else had to walk through the back door kind of deal. And that was, and it was the smallest thing, but it just kind of snapped. I just went, you know what? I put my pants on the same way you do in the morning and I'm still a human being. And why are you better than me? Just because you have this uh, insignia that, that, that's greater than mine on your uniform. Like, you know, so um, I said, like, I'm, I can't, if that's my military, this is how it's going to be. And, you know, at the time, like, um, there was no promotions and they'd frozen the pay. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so really, what do I have to look forward to here? So mm-hmm. I, I think I wanted more than out of life. I wanted something different. And, you know, you'd have these old, uh, crusty old warrants and Sergeant Major saying, well, there's nothing out there for your life is never going to get better than it is now. I went, yeah, I don't think so. So <laughs> off I went. <laughs> and then strangely enough, when I got hired on, uh, with Peel Region, it's, like it was like a cascade of everyone else leaving behind me because people were people were showing up and, and applying in Ontario. People were getting on with Calgary. Like just, I probably know about a dozen police officers in Calgary that I served with in, uh, in Edmonton. Just they not even wanted to live in Edmonton. And second of all, they also wanted something different too. So, um, why did you so, choose policing? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an easy question. Like what when the um because i never went to university or college like i okay and coming out of the military like the skill set that i i had uh in the military not really transferable into the civilian world um as far as uh, technical skills anyway like sure i can blow shit up and smash doors and things like that and and you know my dad said well you know um you know he knew a lot of peel officers um because he ran a body shop down in uh down at the airport so you know, he knew uh, the recruiting officers that like just go and see him, and I went. Okay, so I went and saw him, and and the rest was history. So, and you know, strangely enough, in my in my class, my intake, there was a bunch of guys from Petawawa, so from the RCR, so and the dragoons. So, um, you know, we're all kind of on the same path, right? We've all had enough of the army and want to do something different. And you know, it was ten years, like it was, it went very quick. And you know, when I look back. No, I don't. I don't begrudge any of it. I don't regret any of it. Like I, I probably would do it again. Um, you know, I, I may may have done some university courses while I was in. Um, that probably be the only thing I would change. But the rest of it, no. Um, 
because I'd like to think I am who I am because of those experiences. And I kind of like who I am. <laughs> I think most people like who I am anyway. Uh, maybe I'm just kidding myself. But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the saying that if you look around and you can't figure out who the asshole is in a group, it's probably you? Yes. <laughs> or you're like, ah, I hope I'm not like that guy. Exactly. You want to find that person, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, there he is. It's not me. <laughs> Perfect. So, yeah. So policing was kind of a, <clears throat> an easy transition. It was very similar, very regimented, it was a rank structure. Um, and you know, you didn't need a university or post-secondary, uh, you just need post-secondary and, and whatnot. So, you know, I had a whole ton of reference letters from colonels and majors and, and people that I'd served for in the military. Um, I, you know, like I, again, when I, you know, when I was in the military, I, I worked hard, I did my job and, um, you know, um, I did gain a lot of respect from a lot of people that I, I worked with. And, you know, they still say the same thing, you know, like you were a great soldier and, and those things. So, uh, um, <clears throat> so, you know, when I, when I, when I applied to policing, I was like, okay. And I found it quite easy. Um, I went, I went to the police college. I was like, well, this is great. There's, there were people that were crying and kind of stressing out. And I'm like, well, what's the problem? They're like, well, uh, it's the first time I've been away from home. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so, and, and I'm like, like first of all, you, 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 you don't have to pay for your food. You don't have to do the dishes and you don't have to cook it. I'm like, and this is a win like it's like <laughs> what's the downside so i mean it was only for 12 weeks and uh you know i i, I worked uh um there appeal for about two years and i was commuting i i met my ex-wife she was in my class actually um and uh, i moved over to york region uh, in 2000 and you know i i you know i I've done everything I've wanted to do in policing uh, since I've been in York. Um, you know, it was probably a great move um, because, uh, you know, York has facilitated everything I've wanted to do. Um, I wasn't on the road very long at York and I went to the, the attack team and um, I, I did that for a short period of time. I, I had some struggles there um, in personality. Uh, I was the only guy to ever get on the attack team. So there was a lot of uh, animosity there. I don't know if it was jealousy or whatever you want to call it, but um, really wasn't treated very well. Um, and, you know, I was told I wasn't, I hadn't paid my dues because they have an ultimate program and that didn't sit well with me. And I'm like, well, I may not have paid my dues in, you know, York Regional Police, whatever, but trust me, I've paid my dues in life um, and I deserve to be where I need to be. And that's here. So, um, you know, I, I left after a couple of years because, it, again, it was it was somewhat like the military, and I was like, yeah, this is very reminiscent. Like, it's not really what I want to do, and it, and I never really thought to join the tag team either. But the district out, and they have a gym, and one of the people that lived there, they would come and work out, and he was on a tag team, and said, well, you're military, why don't you come and come and try out? And so so I did. Otherwise, that was like, yeah, I, I was on the fence. And, you know, I, I, had, I do have um, some residual um, issues from, from um, explosive entry there. Like, um, you know, I did have a, quite, quite a, a concussion from, from one of the, the blasts that caused some, some discomfort. And that was on my road to the multiple concussions I've had throughout my, my adult life. <clears throat> 
but um, you know, like I did enjoy the work uh, and the people that uh, I've worked with in ERU. Like again, it also served me well when I when I when I left ERU. Um, and it's funny, I haven't been in years since 2005, but it was like, oh, when did you leave TAC? I'm like, I haven't been in TAC for like 15 years. Like, <laughs> so. I'm just reflecting on the fact that like you've had what a 33 year career in uniform service. Does that sound right? Um, actually, I joined the reserves when I was 17, so probably longer than that. Longer than that, then, yeah. So that's like a, that's a lot of years. Yeah. So <laughs> just changed one. I mean, you know, the funny thing about policing is I, I, I've never really felt like I fit into it. Um, like I, I still feel like I wear a green uniform underneath it. Um, that's how I identify first. Then, then I'm just a, a soldier in a policeman's uh, uniform. I, that's how I see myself. Um, so I don't, I don't know why that is, and I don't think that'll ever change. And then maybe that's just because I'm proud of that service. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I will tell you that, you know, when I was younger, um, I, I put policing on a pedestal, you know, up here on, on what I thought it was. And then and then I became one and, and I was, you know, you know, like, <clears throat> disappointed might be a word, but it wasn't what I thought it was. And maybe and I know that we romanticize things and then, you know, when we get it, it's like, oh, it wasn't, it's kind of anticlimactic. I'm like, so, you know, it's not what I thought it was more so like. Um, it was a lot more like the army than I thought when it came to how they treated people, um, you know, in the early 2000s in, you know, like when you, something happened or, or, um, you, you were involved in something that was traumatic, it was okay, buttercup, carry on. Like, yeah, we've all seen stuff, get over it. Um, and you were like, okay, <laughs> so we go back to work every day and, you know, uh, 96, I ended up in, in, uh, intelligence, in the intelligence unit. Um, you know, I did a whole whack of stuff while I was in there. I was doing anti-terrorism. Um, I was doing witness protection, uh, VIP security. And, uh, and then I was doing guns and guns. And, then I went to guns and gangs. <clears throat> and then I was connected to OPP doing about uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs. So at the Hells Angels, uh, running projects. And then, uh, and then I went back to uniform for, a couple of years, I, I got promoted. I, I was running the drug team in the Criminal Investigation Bureau, and and then and then I hit a wall uh, somewhere around 2017. Uh, I, I mean, I was struggling long before then. Um, and you know, when I look back at it in retrospect, is like all the signs were there. Um, yeah, it, it probably it might have been around 2014 actually when I when I started to show some symptoms that I, I just couldn't hold on to, like, you know, being short tempered and, you know, small things would just set me off and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I couldn't function half the time. And basically I was just functioning just on pure willpower um, because I just felt like I had to keep up this stoic persona of coming to work and being that guy that everyone looked up to. And, you know, I was letting down the team if I didn't show up and, you know, I didn't want people to, you know, think ill of me of, oh, such a wimp, like it's, you know, so, you know, like my ego was, was putting me forward. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I, my, my current partner, Teresa, um, I think it was around 2016, <laughs> she sticks his book in front of me and I looked at her and I go, and I looked at the book, I looked at her, and 
it was a book on PTSD. And I looked at it and I said, what do I read that for? <laughs> she said, just read it. So I read it and I went, holy shit. Um, and that was it. So um, that, that was my, this was my journey into my mental health started in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I, I started seeing, um, you know, I, I contacted Veterans Affairs. Um, you know, they, they, they helped, like they weren't great to deal with, but, you know, they did uh, um, help me out some. And, you know, they gave me a K number instead of paying for some therapy. Because uh, York at the time didn't have great, great benefits for that. And they start aren't they still weren't on the wellness wellness path of hey like come and talk to us or you know like they weren't there yet and you know like I just didn't trust anybody uh, not with that and definitely not <laughs> with my history and what I was going through so you know I I, I saw um, uh, neuropsychologists uh, I've been to CAMH I've been to St Mike's like the, the the, the, uh, like I, I've probably seen so many specialists like I've lost count actually um, but um, you know I've, I've tried uh, the medication like the SSRIs like they just don't work um, MBRT doesn't work um, you know and one of the things I can't track my, my eyes jitter when I, when, I, when, I, when I track things so um, you know I, 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 in, I remember the doctor at uh, the neuroscience doctor at St. Mike's, and uh, he diagnosed me with uh, anhedonia, which is which is really what I had because I just, you know, I didn't enjoy really much of anything anymore. Uh, except maybe going to the gym, um, but that was functional because I I, I, I I needed that to go to work because you know it's it's important to to be in physically good shape. And uh, he said, well, this is the best you're gonna get. Mm. I was like. Well, I don't think I like that answer. <laughs> so, so, so. Um, I mean, I'm not quite there yet, but I've, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've been and done a lot of things in the meantime, and I, uh, I had a great therapist. Um, at um, her name is Barb Ann Schutz, and uh, at a place called the Trauma Center near work, and uh, it's. They just deal mostly with first responders and military veterans dealing with trauma. So, you know, she really helped me out a lot. She got me onto a, a study with the University of Toronto and um, and um, their brain therapy uh, institution um, with a thing called POMS. And uh, it's, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it goes on your tongue and it, it fires at impulse. So, because I can't, if I close my eyes, I can't spin around. I can't, I'll fall over. So, um, and people, so when I went to see them, they're like, so I was telling them what I do. I said, you know, I still play soccer, and uh, like, my, although I don't hold head the ball anymore, but and I said, and I and I ride a bike, and they're like, what? <laughs> How did you manage to do that? Because um, my inner ear, the signal doesn't get from my ear to my brain, so I rely on visual uh, feedback and muscle and muscle feedback so I, it, it's why I was part of my struggle was I was being tired I was tired all the time because I'm exhausted from trying to balance myself all day wow. so um after I did that 17 week program like yeah I, like my balance is, is is fantastic like um I'm not tired anymore and you know I'm, I'm balancing on both balls with my eyes closed like, I'm like so it's amazing some of the things um you know so what happened with the anhedonia with that did that improve uh yes and no it depends 
we should probably define what anhedonia is. Yeah, I was going to say maybe the listeners are uh, are going, what what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's you know it's when you when you lose a passion for things and nothing really makes you happy. You're just kind of in that just treading water, um, feeling the entire time. So clinically, it, it oftentimes goes along with depression, and it really is the notion that people can't experience pleasure. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, we want our mood to be, um, you know, maybe neutral or kind of euthymic, meaning we generally feel okay. But people with anhedonia, it's like they just they they can't sort of seemingly feel that pleasure, and that it it can happen for a lot of different reasons. Um, a very common experience with PTSD is that when people are you know, perhaps so suppressed in their emotional reactions because of over arousal and arousal dysregulation, like that impacts our feelings. And oftentimes mm-hmm. people end up feeling anhedonia. Yeah. I, I mean, I, ha- I have these, you know, these spikes where I feel happiness. So I'm like, so I was like, oh, I, I, I can feel it. So it's there. So it's, 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 it's hope. But because my default uh, emotion is anger, like it, it's, it's been stuck, like that light switch is stuck. Yeah. for a long time and you know suppressing those feelings for you know about a part of 20 years it, it's like it eventually it took 20 years for it to go hey i'm here uh you need to deal with now um and um i think it was about 28 uh, i think it was january 2018 uh at work i i had to take a knee i was like oh, uh, yeah i can't function um i couldn't i couldn't recover from the night shifts and you know luckily enough my superintendent was um um, he, he was my sergeant when I was in ERU and, you know, he knew I was a veteran, loved, loved the military. And, um, you know, he said like, you know, I've known you for a long time. And, and, and if, you know, someone like you can sit here, uh, and asks for something, then we need to listen. And he did. So, um, he said, you know, how do you feel about going to training? He goes, I know you can't go back to the road. So, you know, you still have a lot to offer. Uh, this organization so is that where you want to go and i was like absolutely so you know i started training in 20 uh march of 2018 and i've been there ever since and it, it's the best job <laughs> so it's the most rewarding job i've done i think in both military and um and policing um only because you know i get to help mold other people and and make sure they have the tools that i never had so um you know they it's um yeah. I, I never, you, and, and I never really thought I would sort of end up in this sort of championing, um, you know, mental health. And, you know, the reason for that is, I mean, cycling was, you know, uh, early 2000s, like I was racing mountain bikes. Um, that was my, that was my thing. And then in 2017, when they started the Highway of Heroes, right? um, the Winter Wars Canada, which was from Trenton to Queens Park. And... <clears throat> Uh, Tom Creek is the uh, commissioner of the OPP, um, is a huge cyclist and he was my boss. He was the, the deputy chief at York region. And I've known Tom a long time. When I was in ERU, he was a sergeant in traffic. So we, they we used to work on the gym and we talk about stuff and, and, you know, and stuff. And then he was my inspector when I was in intelligence. So, you know, uh, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the man. And he also has this, uh, unique way of nudging people in the direction that they need to go without it being so uh, obvious. And he said to me, uh, you know, and yeah, you're a veteran. Um, they've got this highway of heroes bike ride. Did you want to come and do it? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I can ride a mountain bike. It's a road bike. How hard can it be? 
So famous um, last words. Those yeah. are my famous last words. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely paid for it. And uh, <laughs> so I, I have a, I have a friend, um, you know, who has a lot of bikes to this ride. He goes, well, here you can use one of my bikes. So so I, I, we head out to Trenton and we're riding along and and uh, you know I didn't know how to fuel. I didn't know how to whatever. And I were 80 kilometers in and uh, and both my legs are locked out, hamstrings and quads, and I'm standing there in agony. And Steve Top comes by in the Jeep and it's, it's embarrassing. I'm standing there and he's, he's on his knees with a roller and he's rolling my legs while I'm stuffing a bag of salted chips into my face. <laughs> someone had a picture, it would be like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to stop laughing because it was quite humorous. And then, so I get back on the bike and then I would pedal with one leg until it cramped out and then I would switch legs for the last 40 kilometers. It was agonizing. So, and then, and then they get up in the morning and do it again. So, and anyway, the last, the rest is history. So <laughs> I've been on my mountain bike twice since. So, you know, um, but every time I tried to ride with Tom, it kills me. So I've just, you know, I've learned my lesson with that. You know, if you want to ride faster, ride with someone that's faster than you, but that guy is on a different level. Um, but you know, him and I have that, um, numerous conversations about mental health and um and its importance and you know a few years ago he gave me the challenge coin for for champion in uh mental health programs um um probably about two years ago we did a ride from Aurelia, <clears throat> and it was uh, to promote mental health and things and you know like tom does the you know ride for mental health every year and you know i see him on the ride to remember which you know it's the 700 kilometers from um from you know the Ontario Police College up to Ottawa, and you know those are long days, and it's a suffer fest. But you know it's it's for a reason. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that's, so. that's actually what's going around my mind, Andy. Is like I think there's probably lots of answers to this, but like it sounds like the cycling and what it means has taken on significance to you. So like, what does it represent for you? What is it symbolic of? Yeah, uh, freedom actually. Um, you know, it, it helped me free my own mind. I think. Uh, it gives me something to focus on, and you know, like um, when when you're sort of out cycling in a group, and it's it, you're chatty, and and you know, you're you're having a good time, and and you know, like it's 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 enjoyable. That's the fun part because it's more of a social sort of thing. Um, but when you're out there on your own riding, and you just listen, I just like to listen to the noise, uh, the road noise, and just everything else, and it allows you to. Um, you know, like there's a lot of noise in the world, and, and you know, there's a lot of noise here, voice even your own like um it's okay to be just just quiet um sometimes I'll, i mean most times i'll drive home from work without the radio on and just just <laughs> just numb out and just just listen to the white noise <clears throat> because it is quite soothing and it, it um you know so you know that for, for the bike that's what it, it does for me um you know like um the right auto i mean is very different than the battlefield bike rides like um <clears throat> like you don't really need to be shaved to do the battlefield but the one to Ottawa, you don't do the oh, training. Thank God, thank God oh. you said that actually, because I think uh, both Megan and I are going. Oh, what are, you know, what are we contemplating here? Seventy-five k a day. I, you know, between the pain and on the undercarriage side, I, you know, do we start training now? Like my head just went, what, what, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm not saying you don't do no training. You gotta do. You know, We're gonna do some training. I get that. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we were to sign up for the. Memorial Death March in March, so. 
you know, maybe go to the odd spin class, you'll be okay. But, you know, <laughs> and, and invest in a really, really good quality pair of bib shorts. Yes, that's, that's that is the ticket, I think. Yeah, with extra padding in the places that you need padding, is that what you're talking oh, about? Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I got onto these Italian bib shorts and I don't wear anything else. I mean, they're not cheap, but like I tell you, it's money worth well spent. Yeah, so <clears throat> I feel like we're going to be, I feel like we're going to be knocking at your door for uh, these kinds of tips over the next few months. Um, yeah, uh, one of the things I just want to go back for a second, like one of the things I'm just struck by is hmm. you know, you. Um, you let yourself take a knee and you let yourself start down the process of asking for help and going that way at a time when it still wasn't all that commonplace. And, you know, mm -hmm. it sounds like you've really held an important position in the, like, in your organization and people have really looked to you and at you as like a leader and a mentor and all these things. And I, I guess I, I don't know if it's anything more than just a reflection of how courageous I think that was. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, it really all started. I think I, I wrote an article in King County Magazine um, about equine therapy. And, uh, you know, a few people called me out on that and because a, uh, they took credit for something that wasn't theirs. Um, you know, little did they know that I knew the guy that started the equine therapy program in Alberta. So, you know, and it was Tom then said, you know, it took great courage to, to, to say those things. And if you have an issue with Andy, then you need to take it up with Andy. And, Nobody really ever called me because, you know, they, they knew what, what I was saying was actually true. And, you know, I think it was probably around 20, 2017, 2018 that they, they started to go in that direction when it was like they were looked at um, the road to uh, the mental health, um, which is okay, but it's meant for the military. I, it, it doesn't really, it fits, but it doesn't. It's kind of like that square peg in the round hole. Mm -hmm. It'll fit if you hit it with a sledgehammer, but it's not the perfect fit, right? There's something better. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was at the point, really, I, I had to I had to do something. So it was either that or, like, I'm not sure what I would have done, but I basically, it was, I had look, I looked in the mirror and I said, listen, like, if you don't sort this out now, then, then you're going to be in some serious trouble. So you have to put your ego aside. In, in ask for some help and not care about what people think. Yeah. And because I was worried about my career, what people thought of me. And uh, I just said, the hell of it. I just, I just one foot forward and, and off I went. And, you know, for the first little while, I, like, I'm like, I was just waiting for it. I was waiting for someone to go like, oh, and start saying things like that. But nobody did. Like, it was the weirdest sort of phenomenon for me. And then, you know, like nothing was big and perfect. I, you know, I made a couple of mistakes here and there that, that was that, you know, um, probably poor choices, but nothing that cost me, um, you know, any type of paperwork in relation to being reprimanded. And he was just, just not the best choices. And that at least, you know, I, I looked, at, looked back at them and, and learned from them. And then, you know, I, I still continued with the Wounded Wars and, and doing the bike rides and, you know, continuing to see, um, you know, these different, uh, therapists and doctors and and um you know um i ended up at a concussion clinic in 2018 that year um because part of then there, there aren't actually a lot of concussion clinics around mm -hmm. and um you know wsib had denied my claim because you know um i didn't go to the doctor and the doctor didn't diagnose me with, with a concussion which they don't anyway um you just had symptoms uh, of a concussion so they denied that claim um, so 
um, that, that, that was that. And I got I got into a serious fight with somebody off duty um, in 2010 trying to arrest a guy that was choking out the loss prevention officer. So um, anyway, um, <clears throat> that, that's a story for another day. Yeah, no, oh my God. <laughs> you know, I, I need to write a book. I'm just gonna I'm gonna be the one to chime in on that too, Blake. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, you know, I just want to loop back considering the time frame that you just shared about, you know, around 2017 is is when your partner put the book on your desk. Is that about the same time frame? Like, yeah, somewhere around it. I, I just have to think about the courage it took for your partner to do that, you know, yeah. after especially after being like I've had partners for six years, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's there's something there when you when you click with an individual, whether you're sitting in an ambulance or patrol car or or wherever you're at when you've got that long-term partnership of, you know, there's that level of trust that, you know, I call it work wife, work husband, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, having your partner recognize and maybe for a while and then saying, you know, here's a quiet way of, hey, what about, have you thought about this and putting that book on the desk? Like, that's a, that's a huge courageous moment for them as well, because, you know, thankfully you're receptive because I can't imagine if you weren't. You know, what does that do to your work relationship or that that relationship with that partner? You know, that there's a lot of potential and I've seen it erode in other other areas of my previous organization that I work for. So the uh, you know, I mean I, I'm gonna loop back to, you know, everything happens for a reason and and you're you might have being right where you need to be. And you know, obviously, and you know, people come into your life for a reason. And maybe she's in my life for that very reason. And you know, if it if it definitely was if it you know, if it, if it wasn't for her, I definitely wouldn't be where I am now. Um, has it been perfect? No, we've had some doozies of uh, some disagreements and yelling and screaming matches. But you know, I'm a Capricorn and she's a Taurus, so two horned animals walking, and and <laughs> very very fiery and very blunt and, and straightforward. But she's all, but but she's she's more on the liberal side, where I'm more on the conservative side. So we, you know, we kind of even each other out. And you know, she 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 works with kids. She's a, a child and youth worker, so. And I'm a cop, so you know we have, we're from two very different worlds, and yeah. you know it was very, um, you know, in that she she's often said to me, you know, she's never she said you never told me what about your I said mom because here's the thing like I you you wouldn't understand um, for for me to to spill all that out to you and tell you what that was like, um, and I and I truly don't think she needs to hear it. Like I don't think it would. I don't think it would change anything. I, I, cause you know, and Steve Toppin said it best is, you know, trauma is trauma. Like, it doesn't matter whether you get in combat or, 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 you know, in a car crash downtown, like it, it's trauma. Like, you know, she just, you know, understand that I went through something that was traumatic and, you know, um, and I just didn't have any mechanism in place to, to help me navigate through it or, or, you know, come out of it. The other, other side and being stuck in that loop for such a long time has been, been, been very difficult and you know how you you know your brain wires itself and i mean there's a, neuro, a lot of neural pathways that have, have myelinated between that and, that. and uh, so you know and you can't undo those pathways you just have to make new ones um and you know, and, you know which is something I've, I've learned relatively recently about how we learn in motor pathways so you know, um, you know, I'm still learning. Um, you know, I see an endocrinologist, um, Larry Comer is his name. He runs the Brain Science Institute down in Burlington. He used to be the Toronto Rock uh, physician, and and before that, he was the head gynecologist in Ontario. I don't understand how you go from how one, you to, get the to, other. one to the other. Yeah, uh, that's a yeah, 
can't connect those ones together. No, anyway, so <laughs> so he's all about optimizing brain health. So, um, you know, I do a whole bunch of things for, you know, help with my, my brain function. And, you know, because my biggest worry is, you know, with the head trauma and all the other things is, you know, early onset of, of brain disease. So, um, you know, now now it's all about. And, and the other thing is, you know, my, my other half, or Teresa is her name, is, um, you know, before she became a, uh, child and youth worker she's a holistic nutritionist so um you know my, my diet is completely different like, like i'm i'm probably the healthiest now than i've ever been um you know and, and you know i can i when when you know i can run the recruit class and you know we're, we're doing i do pt with class and you know we push-ups with them like and i'm doing push-ups all day long and and then uh, and then i go like really you should be ashamed you're like I'm twice your age. So like, well, how old are you? And then I tell them, and they're like, what? I'm like, well, I didn't get here by accident. Right. Right. <laughs> well, you know what? It's so interesting you say that. I mean, in I mean, I think you know, major props to you and shout out for schooling the young kids because that's fun. But yeah. you know, one of the things, and Ryan and I, you know, when we have these conversations with people, or even in, in when we teach together, and and I think you and Andrew, Carl Quist are probably the same. It's trying to get people to understand that these are not just these are not categorical habits. Like you don't take care of your mental health once by going to see a therapist once. Like it's all of these, you know, it's like the river with multiple tributaries. You have to have all of these different things that are flowing in to hopefully have that optimal state of well-being. And trying to get people to understand that there's things they can do to take care of their mental wellness and their mental health that just overlaps with what they're doing for physical health. It doesn't have to be so separate. Yeah, it's right. the body right the mind body now the terminology from you know at least the mindfulness and meditation practices and what i've trained in is you know it's one word now our thoughts our feelings our emotions influence our body and the body influences our thoughts feelings and emotions so how can we work in that landscape and it's a journey you know i heard you use that word a little bit earlier you know and i'll you know my journey is the same thing it's i would say from an optimal human performance standpoint i'm probably at the healthiest i've been and i'm 51. And I can't say that, you know, sure, I could lose pounds, but, you know, seeing therapists, practicing mindfulness, you know, self-awareness studies, regulation, all of those pieces connect in this interesting space of, you know, optimal human performance, if you really want to get down to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, all of those things are important and you just can't just focus on one thing, um, you know, but I suppose if you focus on one thing, your mental health being the most important and, you know, our, you know, one of the things in policing and in, in the military is, you know, they, they, they talk about, oh, you need to go and, you know, educate for educate yourself further and go into university courses. And now we're doing, you know, the Schulich School of Business and, and all of these things. And I said, well, you know, as far as mental health programming, what are we doing? Um, because, you know, if you don't look after the brain, like the rest of it's useless, everything else, like you have to look after your mental health first, everything else will fall into place behind it. But if you don't have your mental health, the rest of it is just, you might as well just spin your wheels because it doesn't work. So, you know, we, we, you know, like there's an awful lot of people that don't come to work for an, uh, a multitude of different reasons. And, you know, those, they have their own reasons for, you know, not coming to work. And, you know, I definitely wouldn't be the one to sit here and judge because, you know, everybody has a reason for that. And, you know, um, and maybe they haven't got the help that they needed. And, and you know, the whole boss program and, and how it sort of landed on my feet was, you know, the, the boss program is a mental health program and it didn't come from our mental wellness unit. 
uh, it wasn't pushed on an angle. It, it, it was pushed because of my my relationship with Scott Maxwell. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I said, like, we need to get this here. And, I, I, you know, I'm like, well, how am I going to make this work? Because there's, there's a couple of barriers here. And, um, you know, because we had done an, like, our, our events coordinator, like I, I know her from doing the ride to remember. And, and I said, you know, Karen, can, can we set up a meeting with the chief and, and Scott and Phil? And talk about this boss and, and the, the trauma informed leadership program um, because I think we need to really get it here. And so she said, okay, this, sure. So anyway, this meeting happened. And of course, Phil talked at nauseum. <laughs> I don't think Ryan's but, met Phil, so I, I, I don't think he well, knows what that means yet. <laughs> God bless Phil. And I mean, yeah, like, love you, Phil, left, if you're listening. <laughs> he left no stone unturned. And, and I mean, I, and I mean, even whatever I didn't know about boss, I definitely knew about it after Phil had stopped talking. <laughs> and the chief said, this is great. Like we should have had this yesterday. And I'm, I'm secretly inside my head going, yes, <laughs> and here's, the, here's, the, here's the home run. And um, so anyway, um, we agreed to pilot it on its, in its first iteration in, in all September, 2021. And, and as, as you both know, the rest is history. So. Um, I think we ran the trauma-informed leadership twice that year, but um, they, uh, you know, the the feedback um, and the commitment from the organization and our police services board after that was overwhelmingly positive. And, you know, um, so it's great. And, you know, like we've run it in every class since um, and we will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we've built, we have built up upon it. Um, you know, like our organization has one of the most robust wellness, uh, you know, uh, centers now in all of Canada. Like, you know, we have, um, you know, a couple of onboard uh, clinicians and uh, social workers and, um, you know, uh, you know, a peer support unit. And, you know, it's really, really been working well for us. And, you know, the recruits now, I, I have um, one of the social workers they include the families, so they do a family night where they they do a big they do a Zoom session and they they learn about what's available to them for benefits and so you know what what I've been really pushing is the family the family inclusion yeah. and you know and we've had this conversation I had this conversation with Shonda and and, and uh, Andrew about you know it's great that we give people boss I said but who's the support network like if they don't know what's going on like they're you know useless so how do we include them. Or how do we mirror boss so they understand what's happening to them and say, here's this book on PTSD. <laughs> you should read it because these are all the signs. Um, and you know, and then Shonda told me in June that the responder first uh, program is 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 good to go. Yeah, first responder. Is, yep. And it's yeah, it's which is super, super happy about that. And um, you know, because <clears throat> unless unless people push things, um and you know and and not to take no for an answer um and no might just mean no right now that doesn't mean i, I always look at it it doesn't mean no forever exactly um, well okay we're, we've gone five minutes that was five minutes ago so how am i going to get around this <laughs> so <laughs> i need to make this work i need to come up with an alternative strategy to get around it um and make it work so you know it's it's uh but you know it's always for the right reasons um you know i've probably sat through I don't know, four or five, six of Andrew's sessions. 
and every time I, I learn something about myself every every time and you know Andrew likes me in the classroom because I always tell I always stand up and go yep everything you talk about every single you think you talk about in this program is me <laughs> oh. well, and I just and I love Andrew and a shout out to Andrew because he's such a dynamic presenter right like he's just so much fun to listen to um, but that's really cool. Like, I think that's so cool that it's like the repetition of exposure to that information doesn't get stale for you. That's amazing. Yeah, mm -hmm. It does. And especially when it's something that you're passionate about and you truly believe in, like every time you hear it, I go, oh, I remember, oh yeah, I remember that. I go, okay. Uh, and maybe sometimes, maybe the third or fourth time that you, you hear it, you hear it differently and mm -hmm. go, oh, okay. Why am I thinking about that differently? And then you go off and go, okay, now I understand that. Um, and then you know, if you hear it enough times, then, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, exactly where you are at the time and you know exactly what you're dealing with. And you know, I, I, every time I'm like, I wish I had this like long before I even joined policing um, because life for me would have been very, very, well, not only me, but a lot of people would have been very, very differently. I, I think it definitely would have reduced a lot of the, the suicides we've had in the last, you know, however many years and, you know, and you know, I mean, I haven't even talked about that aspect of things. Like, you know, like my military friends, police friends that have taken their lives over the last, you know, the time I've been in uniform in both both professions is is like staggering. And you know, I, I actually had to stop going to funerals after a while because it had such an, an impact on me that I just I'm like, I'm having a hard time dealing with my own feelings. Like, and now and now now this, and um, and still not trusting people that. You tell tell my story and you know I'm at this point in my life now of like either like me or don't <laughs> that's not my problem <laughs> so is that, is that age is that due to age because I think I'm almost at the same point <laughs> yeah well, I mean I'm 54 so if I'm, not, if, I'm not, if I'm not there yet I'm never sure when I'm gonna get there but I'm like yeah, you know like I, 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 I do think I do things because I think it's the right thing to do and you know if, if um, you know if you don't like that, then that's on you. Like that's that's your problem. Um, you know, I'm I, I in the office and people bring their little lunches in and they're taking it to the, to the microwave and they're and they see me looking at them and they're like, "Don't judge me." I'm like, "That's not my guilt. That's that's I'm just I'm just having to be looking over that way." And like, saying that you feel guilty. That's on you because you know you should be eating that. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with me. It's all you. So they're like, oh, "Fine." So at least I have everybody in the microwaving everything in glass now versus plastic. <laughs> Yeah, so, I just brought five dozen Krispy Kreme donuts to our place because I had to help my nephew with a fundraiser. So I'm like, um, get them out of my house. Yeah, <laughs> Anyways, yeah. that's the well, sign. I mean, I, I find myself okay. curious. Oh, sorry. Yeah, once in a while is okay. See, yeah, once in a while is okay. That's right. Um, you talked about how you were seen as a good soldier back in the day, and I mm -hmm. I can't help myself wonder, like, was that a good soldier according to the military, or is that a or is that a good soldier like? you know, as you might define it now, because I, I don't know if back in the 90s, a good soldier was somebody who was who is clearly as like passionate and committed and courageous, particularly around mental health as you are. Yeah. Well, you know, it was just being a professional soldier. It wasn't necessarily about the emotional part. It was more so about uh, the technical aspect and, and, pro okay. and proficient at, at doing what I what my job was. And, you know, um, even in Germany, like, um, <laughs> I, I was a tanker so you know um i love tanks like they're like i, I still have chills every time i see one because they're, they're they're just 
I don't know. They just, they're, they're impressive. Like, and they're so big that they just shake the ground. And, uh, um, and, you know, this reunion uh, tomorrow is it's at the Ontario Regiment, which is actually a military museum where they have all those tanks that I served on, which makes me feel like very, very old because, you know. <laughs> so they're relics in the museum now? Is that what, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just <laughs> standing next to another relic. So, um, <laughs> you know, and it was, you know, I took pride in my uniform, like even wearing the, the green combats, like I would iron my combat. They, they shouldn't be a representation of who you are and you know uh and even still now like it's it, the, the, the your uniform speaks to who you are mm -hmm. and you know if you look professional then you and then you act professional and you know um so that, that's that's how i was viewed and and you know strangely enough i'm, I'm still viewed that way like you know my, my uniform is impeccable like you know like like i and you know i'm, I'm physically active so you know i get a lot of compliments of say look you look great in the uniform like you 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 know you're the epitome of what a police officer should, should sort of look like right but but that's just the shell right so if you're talking about a shell then then sure sure then you're you're a great cop you're a great soldier that that doesn't speak to what's inside well and i think uh, that i guess that's kind of what i'm underscoring is like i think maybe nowadays with all we've learned since the early 90s you know and and certainly this would track with some of my education and when my career got started to me i hope nowadays that we can when we think of a good soldier or we can think of a good cop it's like somebody who is tactically or operationally proficient you know and professional and all those things and also someone who can be you know who can lead from that place of um challenging the stereotypes about maybe what historically a good soldier or a good cop was like this this you know pseudo stoic you know nothing gets to them you know persona right yeah and you know but i mean our our organization is really look, looking to shift the culture um you know even our new promotional process is about people first now it's it's how are you how do you lead your people not necessarily you know the technical aspect of things yeah. it's how do you how do you help you know, how do you treat and develop your people, which is great. And really, that's truly what it should be, because, you know, at the end of the day, it, we're, you know, even the military and policing, it's it's in the service of others. Like, so really serving, serving others look like. So if you're helping other people, well, you should also help your own people um, because, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't be treating each other um, <clears throat> with, with disdain and, and saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, get on with it. And, you know, and, you know, and most often the not people that are saying that have their own issues. There's just <laughs> there's a lot of people in denial still. And, you know, I had a, you know, I have had people reach out to me and say, you know, like, uh, you know, the interaction I have with you was, was you know, like you're, you're very compassionate and, you know, thank you for your assistance. And because that's how I talk to people. And, and the way I look at it is, you know, I've been to that place and I know what it felt like. So when I speak to them, um, then I speak to them like I would be speaking to myself back then and, and what I needed then. So, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, trauma-informed um, approach to people is, you know, you have to understand that everyone you talk to probably has some level of trauma at some point in their life. So you just, you don't really know what it is, uh, or should it matter? Like you should always treat people with dignity and respect and, you know, even with with the recruits, you know, like even even the people that you're you're dealing with that are aren't aren't you know the 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 
the best of society. Um, they sh they're still human beings and they should still be treated with dignity and respect because they haven't done anything to you personally and it's up to the courts to decide what happens to them. So treat them accordingly um, because, you know, um, everybody makes mistakes. And, and, I, and I think at the end of the day, not everybody wants to be, not everybody, you know, as their kids say to themselves, man, I can't wait to grow up to be a meth addict. Um, whatever happened to them happened to them and that's where they're at that's the best version of themselves of that day so you know meet them on their level and you know sometimes you you might be the change that helps them in the right direction and you just never know and has that happened absolutely so and I love that perspective because I think something that I think about and I, I try to practice in my own life, but also in my work with people is like, yeah, OK, there's there's who you were and there's who you are now. And there's also who you're yet to be, you know, and, yeah. and I think that's especially in this, you know, caretaking human centric sort of work that we all do. It's like, you know, if you've lost hope that people can change, that's probably mm -hmm. something you need to look at, right? Because that's one of the, I think that's one of the most beautiful and inspiring things about this experiment we're all having on earth here is just seeing how much things can change and shift as we move forward, right? There's endless possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when I, you know, when I deal with people is, you know, how do I want to be remembered? Um, you know, so it, it, I'd like to think, you know, my, my career as policing is like, what, what's the legacy that I'm going to leave behind? You know, like, I love the fact that I get to train recruits. Um, and when I look at, at the rosters now, like almost, you know, half to two thirds of the platoons I've trained, I've put through as recruits. So there's about 600 of them in the last five years. And, you know, they'll always remember who I am. Um, you know, I, I play the disappointed dad role with them. Right. It works great. I, I've, I've never been <laughs> with them. Um, and, you know, I just say, you know, I'm really disappointed. Like, I know you can do better. So next time we'll do better. But by the meantime, we're going to do some push-ups. Okay. It's a team building event. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can promise you that if we find ourselves on the battlefield of uh, bike ride and you try to get me to do push-ups when I'm disappointing you, I'm not going to be here for it. Like, I can promise you. <laughs> keep your push-ups oh, really? and keep on moving. <laughs> right. Uh, you don't want Megan. I'm really disappointed. <laughs> you know, speaking of battlefield bike ride you know I, I get the feeling like you know most of our guests this last you know this last few guests that we've had we can just continue to speak for literally hours and hours yeah oh and I, i'm sure at some point in time we'll loop back in together and and have another you know amazing conversation i have to say thank you uh, for the vulnerability that you know that is your life that you just literally laid out in front of us for the last little while and you know I'm so humbled that there's people like yourself that have gone through what you've done and are willing to share your experiences um, you know from a first responder that's been in relatively a short period of time you know 23 years there's other people that have gone longer than I have but <clears throat> you know when I sit here and listen to what you've been through and the trajectory of your you know your journey through military through policing through the vulnerability to say i need some help you know i think that's the message that there's a lot of people that you know hopefully listen and take away from that it doesn't matter when you started your career or how long you're into your career uh, there's opportunities to get better but you know i just want to loop back to that battlefield bike ride and and you know plug away what what is this thing we've got a short five minutes but you know if if megan and i choose to to head over to the battlefield bike ride in june 9th to 14th i think it is um, uh, I, I need yeah. to prepare my mind for this thing and, and maybe even my spouse, cause I haven't even told her yet, even though we're talking. About 
<laughs> just just put it in a box, wrap it up, and let her open it at Christmas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, I, I will tell you that France, uh, that part of France is relatively flat, so you might you have a couple of hills there, like it. So, I, if we were going to Italy, like the the the, the ride in June, there, there's a couple of days where I was like, oh man, enough with the hills already. Um, and it's definitely not like the uh, Balkans when we went back into 2018. Like that, that was the most exhausting and emotionally and physically demanding thing I've ever done in my entire life. But the France is uh, is relatively flat, so you, you'll be okay. We picked a good year then. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, next uh, 2025 would have been better because that's in Holland and it's as flat as flat can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, but once you do one, chances are you you come back for the second one, especially if it's a good time. But um, you know, there's just one other thing I wanted to say, and it was, um, you know, it, it stuck with me uh, for a long time, and, and it was what uh, Romeo Dallaire said about, you know, uh, PTSD being an honorable injury, and, and that's how I look at it now. I own it. I'm actually proud of it um, um, because I think I'd like to think I did something good to earn it uh, instead of looking at it as a weakness. So when people ask me, I'm more than happy to talk about it. So That's beautiful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like on the topic of legacy, you know, I can, you know, certainly in my life and I think within Wayphone and Boss and and all of the people that we are here representing today, like you have a legacy with us. Uh, Probably a week doesn't go by where your name is spoken and spoken well. Um, And, you know, that's just a small microcosm, I suspect, of the people that you've touched and Mm -hmm. and the impact that you're having. So um, I just want to echo Ryan's gratitude to you and and come back to that. And I I feel quite confident we're going to see you in France. And and I look forward to having that experience with you and and hearing more about you and your amazing journey in this in this thing called life. (laughs) Me too. This is actually a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you again for having me uh, to talk to you too about, you know, about my life. I mean, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, it is an interest, been an interesting journey for sure. And it's not over yet. No, not at all. Just getting started as far as I hear. Yeah. It sounds like it. Well, thanks Andy for coming on the show and uh, we look forward to our future chats. Okay. We'll talk soon. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the mental health mixtape brought to you by the before operational stress program. We hope today's conversation has resonated with you and provided valuable insights into navigating the complexities of mental health. Remember, your well-being is our priority. If you or someone you know could benefit from the support and resources offered by the Before Operational Stress Program, don't hesitate to reach out. Take that first step towards a healthier, more resilient you. And here's a special treat for our dedicated listeners. A 15% discount waits for you when you sign up through the code provided in the show notes. Investing in your mental health has never been more accessible. We appreciate your continued support and commitment to breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. Let's keep the conversation going. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.